Är du ledsen för att du har blivit gammal, Isak? Nej, det är verkligen inte. Allting blir bara värre. Värre människor, värre maskiner, värre krig. Och värre väder. Det är gott att snart vara död. Ach, du är en ruskig gammal världsföraktare, du Isak. Mm. Det har du alltid varit. Ja. Ho, ho, and welcome to the festive season premiere of Rule of Thirds. We are a monthly arts and culture podcast with a film criticism emphasis. Each month we take a look at three films centered around a common theme, and then we discuss and debate them amongst ourselves. You can join the conversation online at thirdsrule.wordpress.com, or you can find us on all the social medias at thirdsrule. I'm your holly jolly host, Stephen Foxworthy. And joining me, as always, is the naughty wassailer himself, Samuel Dumas. I like that title. And our perennial Grinch, Mr. Caleb Dunkerson. I do not appreciate that title. <laughs> Don't think it's accurate. And also joining us tonight is our very special guest, uh, Sam's wife, Mrs. Stephanie Dumas. Stephanie, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm very special. <laughs> very special. <laughs> uh, so how are we doing tonight, everybody? I got here, didn't I? You live here. Oh, yeah, I guess that's also a good point. Yeah, we're doing our uh, our annual meet and greet up at Sam's tonight. So uh, the whole podcast is here. Uh, Sam's wife is here. There's popcorn. There's beer. It's a good. There's pipes. It's a good time. There's cats and a dog. Living together. Mass hysteria. It's great. There's a bearded dragon in the other room. There is. We should bring him out here. You want want to watch out for the leopard gecko. He will try to pick a fight with you. (laughs) He definitely doesn't realize he's small enough to stomp on. Fair enough. (laughs) By pretty much everybody in the house, including the cats. (laughs) Uh, Tonight, we celebrate the sights and sounds of the season by taking a look at Christmas films that really aren't. Confused? You're Mm. probably not alone. But before we dive too deeply into something resembling an explanation... We need to let you know that we have already recorded our What Are We Drinking segment for the night. So we won't be asking that question in this episode. Well, I just want to point out I'm drinking water in honor of my pig. That's true. Sam Sam has uh, upgraded from the Trader Joe's Vintage Ale that we uh, began the night drinking. And you can actually listen to that segment on uh, our website, thirdsrule.com. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. (laughs) Thirdsrule.wordpress.com. Thank you, Caleb. (laughs) Sorry for popcorn voice. It's just there's popcorn around, and you know you're gonna eat it. Well, some people put it on uh, on garlands. We put it in our faces. Sure. Where so, it's supposed to go. Yeah, that's seriously. right. What's As God intended. Hell? A lot. Um, hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, our review of the Trader Joe's Vintage Ales for 2015, 16, and 17 has already been posted. If not, it's something you can look forward to. Either way, check out our website, and you can listen to that as well. Uh, any additional thoughts or feelings to share? Uh, oh, that's right. Sam is upgraded from the vintage ale to, uh, in honor of his uh, choice for this evening. Sam, what are you drinking? Water. Water. <clears throat> if that doesn't give you a sneak peek at what we're, uh, what he's doing tonight, then, well, just hold on to your seats because we'll get there here in a second. I'm a little disappointed you didn't bring any cognac this year. Yeah. Especially with your choice, cognac. This has been a cognac commercial, basically. It pretty much that. is a cognac commercial. Uh, no, last year was sherry. Last year was sherry. Ah, sherry. I told you. I told you. I've never had. I've never had. Doesn't cognac. make sense. Don't drink sherry. Falstaff drank sherry. You That's put... why he brought it. Falstaff. Yeah. Because we watched Chimes at Midnight last right. year. Right. I thought it was. And I said. Sure I said. Sherry. I said. I've never had brandy. I've never had cognac. 
I would like to try. I could have sworn that was cognac I drank. No one drinks sherry, though. No one does drink sherry, but you know what? It was fine. Falstaff. Right, because he's wrong. <laughs> he's Shakespearean. Come on. Falstaff. You know, now that you say it, you're right, it was sherry. And you know what? It was good. It wasn't bad. It was good. It was good to drink. It wasn't I bad. It. I enjoyed it. It was like the cheapest thing on the shelf because that was the only kind of sherry they had. But hey, we got some. We did because we had the three vintage ales plus a bottle of sherry that That's night. Sherry. And we drank the whole bottle. <clears throat> yeah, to be fair, we did. Caleb also thought that it was just wine. It was just regular old wine. No, so it's, that's it's not fortified. True either. You know, I, I didn't know 100% for sure what it was. I just knew it was not. So this was a great wine. debate this morning. Yes, yes. it was a Sorry. big ordeal. Our morning debate got dragged into the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's what happens whenever, Sam, whenever Sam and Caleb hang out too often. <laughs> Which is why they don't hang out too often. There are states separating these two for a reason. <laughs> right. it, had, it had to be done. God gave them a good solid 10 years, and he was like, nope, can't do it anymore. They had to send a judge, step in, say, by law, you need to get out of here. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so tonight, we take a swing at another high-concept episode by looking at three films set during the holidays, but they aren't really about the holidays. Uh, these are all films with backdrops full of snowmen, wreaths, and elaborately decorated trees that are otherwise uninterested in the holiday as it has absolutely no bearing to the overall plot or almost no bearing to the overall plot. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about three such films, discussing just how Christmassy they are or aren't and telling you which ones we like best. And I'll go ahead and start things off because I think I always start things off. We've done, this is our 13th episode. I and I think I've had one. the first film almost every time. Chronologically, you always pick the oldest one. I, I think at least one to. time I did pick the oldest one. Maybe. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I don't remember. I think the oldest film you picked was Touch of Evil, and I picked a film that was released like the year before. <laughs> oh, yeah. <I> <laughs> Those were all one year apart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, there were only two in that episode because you didn't pick one. Yeah. Hence, they were all one year apart. <laughs> <laughs> the Park Chan Wook episode. Oh, no, that's right. That's right, because I opted to go with um, Lady Vengeance yeah. on that one. So that's the only time I've not presented first. All all completely irrelevant to this episode. <laughs> and all available to listen to on our website, thirdsrule.wordpress.com. Uh, so our first film up for discussion tonight is Ingmar Bergman's 1982 Academy Award-winning Fanny Ock Alexander. Uh, Alexander and Fanny Ekdal are happy children with a large, loving family until their father dies suddenly shortly after the Christmas, throwing their young lives asunder. When their mother remarries a harsh and unfeeling bishop, the two are challenged even further. A visual spectacle with Oscar-winning cinematography and art direction, Bergman uses magical realism to capture the magic of being a child at Christmas time. Sam? Next up, we have Joe Dante's 1984 horror comedy, Gremlins. When Billy Peltzer's inventor father gets him a mysterious creature from Chinatown called a Mogwai, his life is turned upside down as he systematically breaks every warning he's given about the creature. Soon his town is overrun with maniacal green agents of chaos, with which only he and his Christmas-hating girlfriend can stop. So my cats were in this movie? <laughs> kind of. I, I, I found a pretty close connection between your cats and the gremlins. I can see that. Good, good. And uh, finally, we have the movie that launched thousands of debates. John McTiernan's 1988 Bruce Willis vehicle, Die Hard. John McClane, a no-nonsense New York cop, visits his estranged wife's Christmas party atop the Nakatomi building in Los Angeles. When it's assaulted by robber terrorists, it's up to John McClane to take them down one by one and save the day, all without the aid of functional footwear. <laughs> <laughs> 
For the iconic performances by Bruce Willis and the late great Alan Rickman, Die Hard is the movie that started the whole Is This a Christmas Movie debate and inspired, inspired tonight's conversation. Sort of. I mean, kind of. The, basically, the debate has been raging online for years. Mm -hmm. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Right. Which, funnily enough, whenever you brought up the concept of having this episode, Die Hard wasn't actually mentioned until I mentioned that Die Hard would be that movie. I wasn't going to I'm throw sure Die you Hard thinking, for myself. But I'm it, sure you were thinking it, and that was probably the origin of the episode itself. But Yeah, it is. I'm the one who called out Die Hard after True. I presented the idea, which is funny. True. Well, and I figured that would – I wanted to save that one for you because, let's be honest, Caleb – Choosing episodes or, or movies for us to watch in these episodes generally is not... It's not my strong suit. It's not your strong suit <laughs> at all. I so, haven't seen very many movies, guys. Because you hate movies. I do. I hate it. We've established this over and over again. It's my least favorite form of entertainment. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but So I figured I'd give you Die Hard. And I was I honestly kind of wanted to do uh, Fanny Ock. And then I was like, that's really long. Maybe I'll switch it up. Caleb and Sam were like, no, we're doing Fanny Ock. I said... All right, we're doing Fanny Act. That's fine. Well, we said that before we realized that it had. Well, we should we'll probably start discussing. We'll, <laughs> we'll get. We'll get. Have we known that this movie was what this movie was? We've told you to pick something different. Uh, well, I tried to. I tried to warn you, and you guys wouldn't have it. So we didn't realize that stubborn. you were wrong. Stubborn, stubborn men. I know you guys are completely incapable of understanding that you can be wrong. No, we were not wrong. Mm. We didn't realize that you were wrong. We thought you were right. We'll get there. Oh. We'll get there. <laughs> so I guess we'll get there right away. What are your initial thoughts on Fanny Ock Alexander? Not even a non-traditional Christmas movie. Yeah, really <laughs> Unless you only watched the first two hours. Oh, for me, it was the first two hours. Sam watched the uh, the the six or five and a half hour uh, TV version, three hundred and twelve minute version that was made uh, by Bergman for television, which is how the film was originally conceived. It was originally released as a a three-hour film, but it was conceived as a five-and-a-half-hour TV miniseries. I watched both oh, versions this week. Sam watched both versions. I only watched the short theatrical release. As did I, which I've which I've actually seen now two-and-a-half times. I watched exactly um, one hour of the extended version and 15 minutes of the short version, and I hated all of it. Because <laughs> you don't so, get art. I mean, <laughs> the there was a lot part. of sleeping going on. That's all I know. The part that the issue I have, and I think Sam agrees, is that the Christmas part was not like the Christmas part was just part of the film. Okay, yeah. the film did not center around Christmas or events that were taking place around Christmas. Really, only it was a character introduction and establishment uh, scene, set of scenes, basically. That in the theatrical release only took up about twenty minutes. Mm -hmm. And then after that, none of the events had anything to do with Christmas because Christmas was already passed at that point. I think she returns, Emily returns to the family at the end of the film on Christmas because there is like a decorated tree in the room. Everyone's dressed yeah, very warmly. That's a birth. That's a birth. Uh, it's like a christening that that is. That's like Easter almost. Well, no, no, no. The very end of the film. This is like when Emily returns home, not after the baby's born. This is before pre pre birth of third child. When she comes back home after she leaves the bishop, um, she comes back, and I'm I'm positive I saw a decorated tree in the room. If that's your connection, <laughs> positive you saw a decorated tree in the room is your connection. I'm just saying. What I'm getting at is, well, the meat of the story of this film occurs in between Christmases, 
therefore has very little to do with Christmas at all. So that, that like, that's where that's where I am. are you gonna let not, me argue? Are you gonna let me argue my point? Or you just keep talking? Gremlins and Gremlins and Die Hard take place. We made our point. Now you have to. Gremlins and you're not letting me. Gremlins and Die Hard take place at Christmas or around Christmas and are Christmas movies. Untraditional. They are not traditional, but they are Christmas movies. Fanny and Fanny Ulch Alexander, though, is for me the most Christmassy movie we watch out of the trilogy, is nowhere near Christmassy <laughs> enough. It is not during Christmas at all, except for like a small tiny chunk. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'm going to argue that the Christmas scene, with the exception of perhaps one scene in the middle of the film, is the most essential scene in the film. I would agree with you because that is the scene for me. I would watch that scene every Christmas because it is so magical. It sets the tone for everything you need to know about every single one of these characters moving forward, particularly in the extended version, because the extended version, the Bishop actually is in that Christmas portion of the film, no, albeit that. briefly. He is in no, the, he is in the audience oh at the Christmas play. You liar. That does not count. He's, no one was paying attention to the audience of the Christmas play. I was. Do you watch extended version? I watched the first hour of the extended version and he's there. He's absolutely there. Ironclad. I guess. Starting to swing this to Steven's side point of view. I watched the first hour of it because I had initially intended to watch the extended version. And I don't think you're paying due to time constraints. I was not able. That would be one of those things that you don't listen to your second uh, watch through because you definitely, he definitely is not a character that has any kind of lines or anything in that. No, he's not established at that point. No, he's not. Even if he's there, he doesn't, you're right. It's like a nod to you. The thing that's hilarious is they don't even establish him at the correct time in the shortened version. It's scene. very confusing. This, this the it theatrical is. release. The theatrical release, and and Bergman himself said um, that it was stripped down to nerves and bone. Like it, it's very. From what I understand, it's very. It's a film, but it's not a cohesive. It's not the cohesive story that he wanted to tell. Well, in every in whoever the editor's defense is, his long version also is not the cohesive story. So I have seen both versions. Okay. And they essentially do tell the exact same story. The problem with the short version is that it leaves a couple of very insanely important plot devices out. Such as? Uh, one, the Hamlet. Like, I know that you know that they're watching Hamlet. Yes, I did. But for those of us who don't watch Shakespeare, and actually this is very important to the character of Alexander, they uh, almost play out that, they play out a very large chunk of that play. Right before Oscar dies, you mean? Right before Oscar dies. Okay. And the thing that's important about that is Alexander is obsessed with that play. It's also mentioned during Christmas time, he's excited about the play of Hamlet. He is obsessed with that play. And I think that's very important for the rest of the movie because what is going on in the movie is his ghost dad. Yeah. Is the, his dad's ghost is there. And there are some ob- there are some oblique references to the play mm-hmm. um, on his deathbed. His father says, I can really play the ghost now. Right. Um, when um, Emily asks the children um, kind of how they're doing after the after they've moved into the bishop's house and Fanny says, we have a terrible stepfather um, and she's putting them to bed. Emily mentions to Alexander, this is not um, this is not Hamlet. He is not Claudius. Um, something to that effect. Right, and they talk about it, but they don't establish that earlier in the movie like they should. It's a weird thing. It's just the long things are edited out. Yeah. I, I think if you're familiar with Hamlet, you get the nuance and you get the reference. But I don't think you pick up on Alexander's obsession with Hamlet. No, you don't pick up on his obsession with it. I do agree with you there. But you get the parallels between Hamlet and... Right, I think they're going for the wrong idea. And the problem is that that actually creates a, that creates a different character. 
Okay. There's a, Alexander is a different character in the short version versus the long version. And I'll buy that. I'll buy that absolutely. I mean, this was this was a very personal story for Bergman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander is basically a stand-in character for Bergman. And under, and seeing other Bergman's work, I get that. He's he has a his career is made up of movies trying to explore his relationship with God. And and, and this one is very much an exploration of his relationship with his father because the bishop is modeled, from my understanding, very closely to his own relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, I find modestly terrifying and i feel kind of bad for bergman see that is the problem that i have with the movie even the long version is i don't understand how the priest at any point was a bad guy or a villain or even abusive um you don't understand how he's abusive because he canes the child right so caning is a form of torture that's um disallowed by the geneva convention so i mean even you know world governments consider that torture I guess I'm considering though just the punishment. What's going on? Like he's not the priest isn't wrong in punishing Alexander. I I don't disagree with you, but the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It would be would be what I would argue, and I think Maybe, Bergman's that, arguing that as well. And that could be chalked to a lot of the old ways, though. And that's I and I think that's something that Bergman is pushing against and speaking. Yeah, against. I, I can definitely see that. Is that his his thing is that the. Uh, Bishop's kind of idea of how things ought to be is incorrect. Yeah. So while he may not be doing something just overly horrendously, torturously villainous, it is wrong. But the problem I have is that it also tries to portray him as a villain. Because then, like, the wife is, like, trying to flee him, and then... I don't know, and that didn't make sense to me either. There was no transition between those scenes. Well, I only saw the theatrical version in there. Yeah, and, but in and, the, and I fell asleep during that. The part. thing I though mean, is, even Caleb, Caleb literally missed the middle of this film. Full disclosure: I missed the part where any of this would have happened, so I'm not 100 percent clear. But I did see all the way up to the point where they were already living in the house, and then I I was back awake before they were gone from the house. So. But the problem, the thing that doesn't make sense, though, is if he's trying to portray these things as bad things, like even if he's not necessarily portraying the uh, bishop as villains, which I, he, he was, um, even if he's portraying these things as bad things, at that point that the movie came out, those things were already outlawed. They were already a thing of the past, for the most part. Fair, but and, but I don't think he's necessarily railing against the practices, which are already considered barbaric. Mm. At the time, they were probably fairly accepted. He's right. saying they were barbaric for the time, A, but secondly, the bishop is a stand-in for Bergman's own thoughts about God and religion. Right. And that's what I see as well. It's not necessarily that he's arguing against this specific exact scenario, specific exact behavior. It's that Even uh, though that probably did happen to him in his youth. Sure, right. sure, sure. But that it's more representative of a larger concept of religion, of like religious uh, um, uh, legalism and how that's forced onto children who may or may not have a choice in in the matter of, of deciding how th- it probably has a lot to do with feeling like children are manipulated in their you know developmenting you know developing stages of life by whatever ideologies their parents um, have and sometimes those are extremely draconian and children have no way out of that which is why I think the Christmas scenes are so formative to this film because that's the way things ought to be. That is the that is the the environment in which Alexander and we could even probably argue to some degree Alexander's mother have been raised in, even though it's not his mother's family. 
the fact that she's been so accepted and so welcomed into this family as though she were their own daughter right. plays a big role in, and which is why the entire family, um, including Emily, including their mother, rails <laughs> so hard against the draconian practices of the bishop. So they would be considered kind of like, um, um, kind of like a, a representation of a, more of a progressive way of thinking. Um, which has its own faults as well with the brother, uh, Car uh, Carl, Carl. Yeah. Uh, the one who's in his, debt to everybody. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and those, and I think that kind of represents a well-rounded uh, Adolf, uh, what's his name? Gustav Adolf. Gustav Adolf. With his, his uh, philandering. Yeah. And his philandering, how that, <laughs> his widely accepted like, mistress. That's what everybody are, loves. And that was a great ending scene too. Like, yeah, like, like I like, he has a story arc with that and whole movie going in the background too, mm -hmm. where like, his wife in the beginning was like, yeah, accepting his flandering, his going after that mistress. But then there's like problems. Like she, I don't know if that is definitely not in the theatrical version, was engaged to someone else. Oh, was she? she yes. Okay, she was, see, I didn't know that. She was, she was going to leave the family. See, that's a, they cut out the entire dinner scene, which establishes one. I They don't answer in the movie uh, or even explain why there's two, two of the uh, maids are depressed. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they never establish why all the maids are sitting at the table eating with them. And there's a lot of characters that stood up that they don't that they don't <coughs> by cutting out that whole dinner scene. Sure. But in the dinner scene, yes, the uh, uh, the Darth Vader's mom. Yeah, I was wondering if you got that. Pernilla Vader's mom. Maj, Maj is the name of the character. Darth Vader's mom uh, was, I believe, engaged to someone else. She's going to leave the family, mm -hmm. but then she fell into a relationship with Gustav Adolf. Yeah. Uh, but also, there's it also establishes why two, not really establish why. But um, there's a lot of there's a good exchanges. Fanny one is also actually introduced in that scene, and she has a conversation with one of the press maids. See, and I think Fanny is really under underrepresented in the theatrical cut, and also in the regular version. Is she okay? Because it's same thing though. It's like this movie should just be called Alexander. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I was curious as to why, and I I have an idea as to why it's called Fanny and Alexander because she's as much of what they go through as he is. I mean, they right. go, the idea is that they go through it together. Yeah. But she, we mostly see it from his perspective, but that's because Alexander is Bergman. Right. Um, but I, you know, the idea is that they, they, they endure all of this together. I mean, she's in the room while he's getting caned and her reaction is and she lies for him too. And she lies for him. She does. She stands yeah. up for him and he takes the punishment for both of them. Right. She doesn't get punished for lying. He does. But going back to the Christmas scene, it also establishes why all the help is actually at the table too, that the that the former patriarch, and I'm pretty sure it was uh, What's-Her-Face's husband, but it could have been the, their father or whoever's before them, actually established as a rule that they were supposed to be at the set. They were all equals. So there's a very progressive uh, thing going on with that family anyways. That's why they have the help at the table with them during Christmas. And two of the maids, the one that's grumpy, uh, Esther, I think, they uh, in the very beginning, they're like, why are you so grumpy? Well, her she her qualm is that that family is so progressive that it's not traditional to mm. how things are supposed to work. Mm. And they missed that by cutting hey, out that the entire sense. scene. Right? But with no context. Exactly. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is the editing doesn't make sense because if they were going to cut the movie down, they should have cut it down even further because they left things in that shouldn't have been left in by cutting other things out. Like, yes, that movie, that movie could have been cut even further to make a probably a more coherent because there are scenes that just didn't make sense and they didn't make sense because other scenes were cut mm -hmm. like that. Like why that uh, one specific maid was so just like, down. So they probably should just cut both the scene that was cut. And then also that scene that links to the scene right. that was cut to make the whole thing more, a little more cohesive. Right. Just, 
not have those as platforms. And also that this, this the Christmas scene, the extended Christmas scene, establishes how hard that family really parties. <laughs> Man, do they party hard? I can't even imagine living like that. Like they eat and drink so much, and they do not sleep. Yeah, and that's kind of in the theatrical you, version too. Because they're like, some of that, look, yeah. it's three o'clock in the morning. We have to be up in two hours to go to, to, go to church. church. Yeah, we just might as well not sleep. Let's drink some coffee with a rabbi or yeah. not a rabbi. Uh, no, no, he's definitely not a rabbi. Definitely uh, not a rabbi. Pawnbroker, Jewish. He's a puppet maker, but yeah. yeah, but he's Jewish, and that's important to the plot. Yes, it is very important part of the plot. Yeah. Um. No, this this film is. Um, I think it's absolutely great. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, won four Academy Awards, uh, three of which all had to do with the visual aspects. It won cinematography, Sven Nyquist. The, uh, uh, what is it called? Not placement. The, uh, well, yeah, whatever. The placement of the, the shots are so effing beautiful. Mm-hmm. Framing, yeah. you mean? Framing. No, there's a there's a theatrical word, actually, that, uses, that gets used. Blocking? Blocking. The blocking is so freaking phenomenal in this movie like if you watch the the uh, i love the movie because it's a good example of the ingmar bergman work mm-hmm. if you watch the extended version the theatrical version actually cuts out a lot of what makes ingmar bergman movies ingmar bergman movies okay. so you watch the first hour of the of the right so the prologue that they basically cut in half in the theatrical version yeah. made no sense why again that's another scene why keep that scene if you're going to cut that in half if you're going to cut out the ghosts and death and all that yeah. jazz, why even leave that scene in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, the Grim Reaper, by the way, looking nothing like he did in the Seventh Seal. No, no, this is Very a more traditional Grim Reaper. Yeah, with the skull mask and the scythe. Um, Max von Sydow, by the way, I heard was actually approached to play the role of the bishop and wanted to take it, but his agent turned it down. I think the actor that got to play the bishop was probably a better choice. He was very I good. I love Max von, uh, von Sydow, but... That was a good actor. They got to play the bishop. I agree. I don't disagree. But Max von Sydow was uh, pretty pretty bitter about not being able to play that part because he really wanted to play it. Yeah. But I, I do think they made a good choice. I do think. And this guy was a, that the guy that got to play the bishop was actually a song and dance man. He's not. This was very against type for him in terms of the role. Right. Uh, so and he Bergman, made a good career choice by choosing that. Yeah. Thing. Bergman saw something in him and was yeah. and yeah, I think he did a remarkable job. See, I consider the sister to be more villainous than even he was. You're probably not wrong. Because yeah, she's she Henrietta. Is, yeah, Henrietta. Shut up, Henrietta. I love that when the mom tells her to shut. Oh up. my god, that scene was so in your face. Yeah. Like, yes. Rips the key out of her hand and oh my god. Oh gosh. no, I'm talking about the dinner table when her mom oh, told her to shut up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> when she was being all about stickler about the rules, and then her mm-hmm. mom was like, "Shut up, Henrietta." <laughs> It's such a great movie. It is, but I also have qualms, specifically because there is no, it has a very, like, again, coming from the uh, full-length version, it has a very strong opening and a very strong ending. The middle is so weak and lackluster and inco- and just like, the movie should have been longer than it was. Because there is no transition at all between... You're talking even longer than the five-hour version. Longer than the five-hour. The reason is there's no transition whatsoever between the mom being madly in love to, with the bishop to hating him. Yes, she explains it in a scene of exposition, but there's no transition. It's, and it's fact, telling scene, rather than showing. Right. In the But the scene of... The scene of... Uh, um. The matriarch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it happens while she's gone. 
Right. Yeah. So it's like there's no transition whatsoever. There's no there's no character development. It's it's just a it's just a bad middle. But the opening, the Christmas scene for me captures the magic of Christmas so much. And this movie overall captures because for me, ghosts and Christmas are associated. I don't when I think of ghosts, I don't think of Halloween, I think of Christmas. And that's because of a lot of Christmas English, Carol. A lot of, not even just that, a lot of old English writings I've read. A lot of ghosts and Christmas and in the way the ghosts in the movie are more Christmassy ghosts. For me, like ghosts and uh, Christmas going hand in hand. It actually comes from Mark Twain. Okay. Some of his an American writer. Some of his short stories, yeah. Because uh, there's a, just a, like this weird like spiritual connection during Christmas, say depression. Honestly, I think the lines between death and life are more thin during Christmas time than Halloween because we have like high suicide rates during Christmas time. There's just more of a somber but also joyous time. So there's like a nice blend between ghosts and humans. So that's why I think this, this movie is actually more Christmassy overall, even though only like a, ball, a very small chunk of it took place during Christmas. Well, and that's a par- partially why I chose it. Um, but again, I think in Christmas, while I think it is essential to not the story, the narrative, but to the characters mm-hmm. is why I think it's essential. And this is a character driven story yeah. by and large, which is why I, which is why I chose this film. And it is very holiday focused in particularly that early scene. Because and that establishes everything you need to know about all the major players, mm-hmm. with the possible exception of the bishop. He is he, he is evident, but not. Um... He's just a, I think he's a lot more complicated character. But then they p- put him in a more shallow position in the movie than he should have been. Like if they're gonna make him shallow and like vicious, make him shallow and vicious. Don't make him not wrong about what he does. And I guess that also comes to the fact that I watched the long version. There is a insanely vital scene they cut out that completely changes the entire movie. Which is? The ghost that vomit all over the place. Okay, explain the context for that scene. Because neither Caleb or I have seen Or Stephanie have Dude, seen Do you have something to say? Because I feel like you have something to say before I go into detail about scenes that they cut from the long version. I had version. something to say about um, what you were saying about the mother and her transition. Or the lack thereof between loving and hating the bishop. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if... Maybe in Bergman's mind, that's not that doesn't matter how that happens. That's just a matter of course that's going to happen. That the mother is going to become disillusioned with this new marriage, with this new you know virtuous but man they, because they, his ways are not. No, no, no. Just, just hear me out in, in completion. The movie is about Alexander's perspective of things. It's not about her. Okay, it's not about the mother. So I'm not saying that that forgives the fact that they didn't flesh out her kind of character and mindset through that process. But I'm wondering if in his mind, it wasn't important to show how she fell out of love with the Bishop, Mm -hmm. because that was just going to happen as she became disillusioned with this idea of being with this virtuous man, whenever the reality of what all of this legalism and everything set in that was just going to happen and from the perspective of the story what's more relevant is what's happening to alexander and his perception of this because from his mindset he always perceived the bishop to be a bad dude whose whose perspectives on things did not align with his own and i get what you're saying but there's a very elaborate scene where he's playing where the bishop's playing a flute and the woman and the mom is there devoting her life to him like if you cut out those scenes and that would make more sense what you're saying but the problem is they build up so much of what her purpose what her drive was but but think about it it like this though 
from a kid's perspective, watching your mother go into something so different, so alien to your upbringing so far, that scene, I think, is also effective as our perspective into what Alexander's perspective of his mother's extreme change, you know, going to this totally different, quote unquote, virtuous man. I don't know. I'm not saying that that totally forgives it, but I'm wondering if his if his idea was that he's trying to show us that she goes head over heels with this guy and that from the perspective of the children, they're seeing this happen as well. And it's completely baffling. Mm. It's baffling that she falls head over and heels with uh, head over heels in but love with him, and then also equally baffling whenever the 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 marriage falls apart because that is oftentimes the experience for kids who go through situations like that where nothing about what is happening to start or end a relationship is clear to children. Mm. So that's that's my thought. But the problem is with that though is that the, her going into the relationship is so well fleshed out with her character and character development on that particular end yeah if they cut out just that development then i could see what you're saying but they didn't there is like very specific scenes where they flesh out her reasoning and everything and you're getting you so you have this whole mind context of why she's going into this exactly why she's doing it what she's doing and obviously she's gonna become disillusioned but there's no transition between the disillusionment mm -hmm. there's nothing that would make sense like what would have set her off at that point specifically i'm just thinking that probably he didn't think it was relevant or, or mattered and i think that's weird on and maybe side. that was not a good decision i don't know yeah i mean i'm not here to to judge that because i'm you know i'm just here to review his movie <laughs> right. so i'm not here what, to judge what did you think of his movie caleb um i thought it was boring af and i couldn't track <laughs> what was happening at any point whatsoever yeah, I, had a feeling, I had a feeling this was going to be a struggle for you however I have to say it's much more interesting to talk about than it is to watch it's a lot harder okay. well it's a lot harder to follow it too with the <clears throat> shortened version because like Gustav like why do you even care about the character if they cut out half his scenes yeah well and I mean yeah I love I love Gustav Adolf um not Gustav Adolf I'm uh Carl Carlo. Carl Carl yeah no I agree yeah, with no, you no, no Gustav uh, Adolf actually had all of his scenes in the movie. Okay, good. Because I no. love him. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't understand. It's Carl. Why they even introduce Carl if they're not going to play out all of the scenes? Yeah. Him and his wife have such a crazy relationship throughout the entire series. Are they are they held up at all as a as a counterpoint to say the major relationship of uh, Emily and the Bishop? We can know. We get to that because I actually have some things to say about aristocracy in the entertainment industry okay. i want to get back to a very vital scene they cut out okay they cut out a scene where uh alexander is locked in the attic and he's visited by the ghost of the bishop's dead daughters okay well and see my my interpretation of the scene in which he is telling the story of seeing the family is that he actually did see them and he did see them but that's in a cut scene so well he didn't see them in the cut scene so but he, what happens is like yes he's telling that story so you're like led to believe because he's already seen ghosts to his dad so you're believe okay maybe he's, but also maybe he's making it up there is a scene after he's in the attic where these girls show up and they start like making with him because they lied to him about everything about the bishop mm. the story that he was telling them was a lie and then they vomit on him for some odd reason that's weird yeah i mean you're gonna do that <laughs> i mean this is a post shining world that we're living in in 1982 so. dude this movie was borderline a horror movie at times <laughs> Like, and things, see, I don't, I don't get that in the theatrical cut. So that must all be in dude, the things. In the weird. I got blown down the theatrical cut. Did you? Yeah, I did too. While watching, and I was like, I, I, I turned to Sam and said, "Hey, man, this is like a low key horror movie, isn't it?" Yes, but mainly in the final act where they're in the uh, okay yeah. curiosity shop. And yeah, like, okay. That the cannibalistic sure. nephew is played by a woman. 
who then like takes his clothes off and then like teaches and uses his mind to kill the bishop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that that whole scene. I'm sitting there going, um, an adult anywhere? Anywhere an adult? No, no adult. My hand held, guys. What is happening? Oh, and yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's theatrical. That's the regular scene too. So I can't. I don't have any more insight into that. Actually, that just happens. But well, maybe. Mm. Hmm. Try to figure out what that's supposed to represent, because obviously it doesn't. It, it represents something, possibly just like the think, kind of see, seeing other other perspectives in the world, some which may not be healthy. So I've been reading <laughs> but, a lot about your... this movie, and people like argue about if this is a good introduction to Bergman or not, because it is considered to be the quintessential Bergman. Mm -hmm. But not understanding his other works kind of makes this weird and confusing. Because for me, watching this movie, having seen his other movies, Ghost is just a thing. Like, that's just a thing that's in the movie. Yeah. And, like, the psych, like the cannibalistic female nephew sidekick thing at the end, that's just a thing. That's an Igmar Bergman thing. His movies are very, they tell you a story, but they also tell you other things besides the story that's being told. They're not traditional Western-style stories. Right. Like, he, when you think of, like, foreign movies that are black and white with the weird stuff going on and people in weird makeup and saying things that are really bleak and Swedish – that is him. That's Ingmar Bergman. He is that guy. Yeah. It's half Bergman and half Fellini, except for the Swedish part. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Like when you think of weird art house movies are black and white and depressing, that's Ingmar Bergman movies. Yeah. Seventh so, Seal is very much of that of that vein. Yeah. Um, oh, then the actress, the sister from the uh, Through a Glass Darkly was the maid who tattles on them to the priest. She was in Through a Glass Darkly. She oh, was okay. the sister. Um, or like Winter Light, which is about a priest losing his faith in God. That's an insane movie. Jeez. Talking about a movie that will just leave you shell shocked, <laughs> but it's a very yeah, it's a weird. It's if you the theatrical version is not a good representation of Ingmar Bergman. Okay, I would highly recommend the long version because that is the quintessential Ingmar Bergman. But if you want to understand a little bit better, you'll probably have to watch some of his previous movies. But if you can get down with ghosts and. Uh, I'm all about magical realism. That's, right, I have no and that is with that. exactly. There's his movies have this weird magical otherness, but it's also at the same time till still telling real world stories. Yeah, they're they borderline this kind of weird fantasy, but not really. See, and this is my second Bergman film after um, Seventh Seal. Mm -hmm. So, and I I had fully intended to sit down and watch the the television version for this podcast, and I just yeah. And Didn't that the is time. the most Bergman version because he has such a knack with cinematography and catching the most mundane, boring things. The thing is, I make his movies so good, as bleak as they are, is that he just has a knack of catching life. And that's why I love the Christmas stuff because there's no plot going on at all. You're literally watching a, a, a rich family enjoy life, but it's so interesting through his cinematography and what aspects he is actually capturing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much. Uh, a example of visual storytelling in this film yeah. and this movie also taught me something about myself i love weird uh i love stories about uh aristocracies in the past okay. so growing up like between this i realized this because i'm fascinated by this family this rich family and then i think about what book i read this year which was anna karenina and how obsessive that was and how much i love rules of the game yeah the rules of the game yeah it's great it's yeah. a great film and i realized that like growing up, because you think I wouldn't like that kind of thing, that I was only ever introduced like Jane Austen and Charles Dickens type BS. Um, so English style aristocracies are the most boring subject you could possibly have. 
but European ones, on the other hand, like yeah, anyone else? Because the reason is, is that um, like Anna Karenina and this and rules of the game are closer to how suburban life in America is. Yeah, kinda. Like there's a type of hypocrisy, like English style stories with aristocracy. There's hypocrisy with like the person telling the story is all is completely hypocritical and ignores the things that actually go on. Whereas in like Anna Karenina and in this, they are aware there's a like the family is religious. They go to church, but they're also a bunch of whores and alcoholics. Yeah, and they're all very accepting of that behavior. Right. Like there's like in the other- whole family knows that Gustav Adolf is cheating on his wife. His wife knows and his literally insists on it, and everyone's okay with it. Right. But, and the thing is, like, I find, I find this in two, like, with an Anna Karenina, like, it, like, just the way it rules the game, just the way it is, is there's the hypocrisy is just accepted part of life. And people who tell the stories are aware of the hypocrisy, and that's part of the story. You see the hypocrisy. You see these people, like, yeah, we're church going Christians, but we're also a bunch of whores and people who do the opposite of church. And you I think you should that's check out last year at Muddy and Bad. I will probably check it out now. You would probably, it's, I didn't like it. I'm going to warn you, I didn't like it. You might love it. Maybe. I don't know. I, it is almost I, I, incomprehensible. I love these stories because they're so uh, representative and it's the closest thing to the American like suburban life that there is. Yes, yeah. yeah, you look at suburban life, like like Desperate Housewives and stuff. That's what these kind of stories are. Desperate Housewives is definitely an American take. It's a, it's a satirical take, right. but it's an American take on those kinds of stories. Right, right. and that's what these stories are, is that they're like these weird soap operas. Because like in America, you're just the same perception. Everyone's a Christian, suburban life, like the American dream, et cetera, et cetera. But all the evil underneath going on in it. And that's what these stories, right? That's why I love these stories about weird aristocracies from the past is because they are very closely to like, and I never realized that until this now, because I always hated reading about rich people because, but in school, we only ever read English books. Yeah. We didn't read anything Russian or French or Swedish or uh, French. There's another French example I had that I lost. We never had that stuff. We had all the English BS and that's boring because English people are boring. (laughs) Victorian era stuff is the worst. It's all lies, and they don't even recognize the lies. They just stick with the lies, and they try to be all satirical. I hate British. I hate British. <laughs> we won the, the war. <laughs> all right. Uh, any other uh, any other last words on uh, Fanioc? Well, like my like we we kind of said in the beginning. I, you know, I, I I didn't I don't know anything about Bergman. Never seen any of his films other than this. So like, I don't have the perspective that you guys do. But it is interesting hearing you talk about his kind of other films and how there's how he generally, I guess, is trying to express his issues with with mm-hmm. religion and how he feels about it. This is a this is a really interesting perspective to look through what I saw uh, because I didn't uh, understand it as being that initially. Mm-hmm. I was just like, this is just a bunch of stuff happening. Mm-hmm. wasn't sure uh, what the what the point was. Now I'm starting to piece together the point, and it's much more interesting on reflection than it was while I was watching. And I think if you go back and watch it again, you may have. I a, won't be. Doing I that, I that didn't figure you would. I got if you want to explore more bourbon, I got some other recommendations. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say fine. Sam's the guy to go to for the bourbon. I'm open Rex, to hear sure. more. I'm open to see more uh, Bergman's work, but uh, just I won't be watching this one again. I think I got what I needed to out of it, and now after on even on though you slept through half, it doesn't, yeah, I, I think I got what I needed. It's for in my um, opinion, it's not worth going back. But I will say that um, I think it's interesting that. looking at it through that lens. Um, you know, the 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 bishop being there 
smacking him on the back of the head, smacking Alexander on the back of the head, and now being with him for the rest of his life, you know, ostensibly, is really, is really, is really, it, it makes a lot more sense to me now thematically because this, you know, that, that kind of damage from that life, you know, that time spent there under those kinds of rules and thoughts and ways of life will be carried with him forever, even though he's free of it now. And that mirrors exactly uh, children brought up in circumstances that they have no control over and how that damage carries along in the rest of their lives, even if they get out of, um, you know, those kinds of thought, you know, ways of thought. Um, there will always be remnants of that. This is why so many people that grow up in those really strict, harsh religious traditions uh, tend to rebel against them. Yes. Um, which is why we're seeing the great millennial exodus from the church, to be quite honest with you. And it, and it really and it's really um, destructive. Just the rebellion itself, that's fine. That's destructive, whatever. But but the just the continued constant desire to rebel against anything and everything that resembles that kind of undercuts any kind of like logical thinking about how you should live your life because it's all, you know, so much of your way of thinking is wrapped up in how can I contradict what I thought or what I was raised to believe? Right. Because I don't believe in any of it now. Yeah. And so it's really destruct those extremely strict, extremely legalistic upbringings are really destructive to, to, uh, you know, well, well-formed, healthy thinking human beings. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure. it's very interesting. For sure. A lot of what I was saying too goes back to what you were saying about how now you didn't understand it in the context mm. and how people say that you should, if for Ingmar Bergman, this is a good introduction and how I disagree with that. Mm. Yes, quintessential Bergman, but without understanding his other movies, it's really hard to understand this in the context of what it is. You might just see it as another boring movie about rich people in the past. Uh, that's what I saw it as. Exactly. Oh, and without understanding, yeah, exactly. Without <laughs> understanding his movies, his other movies and again it's his quintessential and i don't actually even much care if it's not my favorite by him um to just circle back to a point i was i was getting to or I, just to finish a thought that i had started earlier and never finished uh four oscars uh cinematography costume design art direction and best foreign language film for 1982. deserved it yeah absolutely everything yeah everything everything about that was deserved bergman himself was nominated for best director he lost to james l brooks for terms of endearment and he was nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to Horton Foote for Tender Mercies. See, it just goes to show you the Oscars are meaningless and pointless. Pretty much. The, I mean, it's, it's, it's all political. It's all politics. Right. Um, but Gremlins, what do we think about Gremlins? <laughs> I only have uh, one question. Okay. When is after midnight? Is it all time <laughs> after midnight or before midnight? Time is circular. Unless my question time is, is um, they can't get in water. They can't touch water or they'll multiply but they can totally burrow under snow and right. spill beer all over themselves. Right. And they they can eat, apparently, with, and that's all got water in it. I'm just saying. It's weird. Hmm. Water. It's everywhere. It's in the air. Mm -hmm. It's in your hair. Oh, wait. It seems like a... <laughs> pretty poorly thought out issue <laughs> it was it was entertaining there's though. moisture basically the air. basically the rules apply <laughs> when the plot needs them to apply and they don't when it doesn't which is you know i mean that's that's typical mcguffin behavior so uh -huh. it's i mean this is not a movie that 
really needs to be discussed on quite the same level as Fanny and Alexander. Right. This is not a deep film. This or is. This we is, didn't want no, This is even more shallow than Die Hard. <laughs> yeah. No. This is absolutely more um, shallow Die Hard than Die Hard. Is not shallow. No. Die Hard's great. I don't much to say about Gremlins except for the guy who played the dad delivered the most. Had so much effort in his lines. He put so much effort in his life. Yeah. And by that, I mean sarcastic. Yeah. I've never seen someone hand <laughs> so much. Was that guy even like a, awake when you filmed him? He may not have been. He was like asleep every time he said something. I'm not going to lie. I, I I was sold on him as a character. <laughs> of course <laughs> you were. To be honest. Of course you were. He really nailed it, I think. And I'm not even, I'm not being sarcastic right now. <laughs> He sold being a failure of a man yeah. extremely well. <laughs> well, you know, like I said earlier, Hollywood loves typecasting. I mean, so, man. No, I, that's really mean to say. No, I'm sure he's great. Um, <laughs> I um, don't know. I, that is, that is, oh, jeez. Um, His sales pitches every time, they got me. I was like, friend. I, I always I, start, friend. I've known of people like this. I, I, I understand the archetype. He, he i feel like he nailed it <laughs> yeah it was i'm yeah it's it's fun it's a fun movie it's not too deep i mean here's something interesting about all three of these films all three of these films have two really odd things in common one they're all 80s movies which it's not really that deep but i found it interesting too none of them are released none of them were released in uh, theatrically in or around the christmas season I know Die Hard was released in summer. When was Gremlins released? They were all, all three of these films were released in either June or July. Nice. <laughs> all three, including Fanny and Alexander. Awesome. These are June, July released films. So none of them, and maybe that's, and I'll come to this point probably later, but maybe that's why they don't typically feel like Christmas movies. Um, I wasn't there, so I, I can't say. But <laughs> I just, I mean, they feel more like, with the exception of Fanny and Alexander, obviously, but Gremlins and Die Hard particularly feel more like fun action blockbuster popcorn movies for which Christmas is sort of an incidental piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, Gremlins is a very fun movie. Um, right. There's, it's, there's a lot of humor. It's all very slapstick eighties kind of humor. My favorite um, part of the old lady dies. Yes. The old lady zipping up the stick who is, by the way, her character is a combination of Ebenezer Scrooge and uh, the wicked witch of the West. Yeah. Because she wants I to kill a dog. Definitely got the Wicked Witch of the West. For sure. And uh, she's she's the uh, the miserly uh, head of a bank. Mm -hmm. And every time someone like greets her on the street, they're like, she's like, ah, snapping at her. What's so good about it? Ah, and walking by. Mr. So, Potter. with the exception of maybe a ba and a humbug, she is pretty much uh, Ebenezer Scrooge mixed with a little Wicked Witch of the West. So her, her death is very satisfying. It's so funny though. On the little uh, the chair that goes up and down the, the lift chair, yeah, send her out the window. It's <laughs> funny because that would not play for laughs in a in a 2016. No, no, movie. the deaths. Like, oh, I'm surprised by the people who died died in the movie. Like, some of these characters are kind of sympathetic and they're just getting killed off for laughs. I'm like, oh, like the Futtermans. Yeah, poor Futtermans. Oh, them and their European. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were racist though, so that's that's, that's the only thing. Yeah, it's too bad he couldn't live okay, to see this modern era. He would have loved it. Oh yeah, even the American cards aren't made. He would have been a MAGA supporter all the way. But um, but no, it's um, no, it's it's fun. It's fun. Um, 
a couple things I wanted to point out. Steven Spielberg is the guy on the car, the little car at the invention convention. Um, the first time. Oh yeah. Yeah, a little guy rides right in the front of the frame. Is that's Steven Spielberg? He's got a cameo. He was the executive producer on this. Uh, good friends with Joe Dante, the director, uh, and Howie Mandel, the what? questionable Canadian comedian, is the voice of Gizmo. What? <laughs> yep. Okay. That was Howie Mandel. Huh. So. That's fair. Yeah. The more you know. That was back when he was doing this stuff, like blowing up uh, surgical gloves on his head with his nose. Hmm. doing that kind of stuff that was his Poor shit guy. back in the day yeah Poor guy. So it's pretty solid <laughs> yeah the only that's, other, the that's only, comedy for you again this movie was entertaining honestly the only other thing i had to say about it was that orange juice maker <laughs> that orange juice maker though <laughs> that well, orange juice maker if there's anything to say about it um you know if refined mm -hmm. could be like the solution to world hunger well, I mean, yeah, that's true. Because you put in one orange and you get the juice of thousands of oranges. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. So Not need, lie. needs a little bit of needs a little bit of work, a little bit of refinement, but there's definitely something of value there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, no, Gremlins is fine. I love the uh, the end of the film. The the theater scene is classic, iconic, um, really great. Um, yeah, I don't really have much more to say about this movie. Stephanie, you got anything? What do you think of Gremlins? It's pretty good. Okay, cool. Not a whole lot. Good talk. I'd never seen it before. Um, glad you barely I, got to finish it. Glad, yeah, barely, yeah, barely got to finish it. Uh, glad I finally did watch it, though. Uh, nice to have seen a movie that literally everyone besides me has seen. Yeah. Um, so now I'm in that club of, of movies that, that uh, everyone but Caleb has seen. I am now in that club. If it helps, I had not seen it in years, like years and years. And years. So I had not, it, I didn't it really remember doesn't help because anything. I have not seen it ever in all of the years. It was that one have of those uh, I caught bits and pieces on TV until I posted them all together in my brain and yeah. made up a movie. Figured out what yeah. the linear, linear progression of that um, was. Yeah, so uh, uh, not really about Christmas. That was nice. Yeah. Um, happened around Christmas. Christmas served as a as an important um, uh, mover of the plot it's to, a very, to get things established. It's a very big character moment for Phoebe Cates' character as well, because that's I mean, the whole story of the loss of her father. Oh, sure. That's a good Good. Yeah, which right. is the very controversial speech from what I understand. Really? Yeah, studio wanted it cut because they didn't know whether it was funny or sad. Okay, couldn't and figure it out. Yeah, couldn't couldn't figure it So they went to Spielberg and was like, hey, can we get this out? And Spielberg's like, um, I don't really like it, but it's Joe's movie, and I'm going to let him do what he wants. So he wants it in, it's in. So that's how that happened. Well, there you go. At least yeah. producers weren't meddling in the film's production too much. Which is, you know, a welcome change to today when that's all oh, producers sure. do. Yeah. It's almost like uh, you know, directors and and uh, and such writers don't really uh, get to make the film anymore. Yeah, point, yeah, they're not really is. involved. No, right. not at all. Oh, you wrote this film? Yeah. Um, like you want to have input mm. on on the you you you're gonna have you expect to have input. The only uh, person that has that kind of power anymore is J.K. Rowling. Oh, that's a sad state of affairs. Isn't that? <laughs> yeah. Well, but, anyway. <laughs> yeah. But she's also a producer on all those films, too. So, I mean. Oh, now it all makes sense. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So, Gremlin's kind of fun. Uh, sure. Christmas. It happened. Let's get on to the one I know you guys really want to talk about. Die Hard. Yes. Die Hard. So, some background on Die Hard. 
because I found this insanely interesting. Um, originally offered to Frank Sinatra, Academy Award winner Frank Sinatra, because it is based on a novel, which was a sequel to another novel called The Detective. The novel itself is not called Die Hard. It's, um, hang on, I got it on my phone here. I can pull it up here. No, I don't. Never mind. Um, it's by a guy named Robert Thorpe, and it it's based on Robert Thorpe sees the movie The Towering Inferno, which is a movie we've covered here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes, terrible movie. Great movie. Um, which is about a um, which is about a, a giant skyscraper being caught on fire, and he said, "Well, what would happen if, say, that were full of men with guns instead of on fire?" And that became the um, idea for that novel. The it was a sequel to a novel that had been converted into a film starring. Frank Sinatra, which debuted in 1966. Okay. So when they went to make a film version of the sequel, they offered it, they were required contractually to offer it to Frank Sinatra, who had done the previous film. Sinatra, being a 73-year-old man at the time they offered it to him, declined. Mm -hmm. And so this was originally supposed to be or conceived as a old Frank Sinatra vehicle, um, which would not have worked. Probably not. At all. Probably Frank Sinatra, fine actor, could not see a 73-year-old John McClane. Okay, I have something to say. Okay. Based on that story you just told me about the origin of this of this film, mm -hmm. um, did we not, in the Towering Inferno podcast have a conversation about how towering inferno is basically die hard except for the fire is the terrorists i don't remember i swear that i said that those exact words in that podcast Did that you? was my takeaway that. that was my takeaway about towering inferno well, die hard die hard is apparently where, based on towering inferno the terrorists are fire so there you go if, so if it is all come full circle here we're gonna have to listen to it again right to make sure, but I I'm not going to listen sure. to that episode again. I'm going again. to. I'm not. That's that a, long, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad episode. It's a long episode. That is okay. my least favorite so, episode of the show. Man, good thing they didn't go with Frank Sinatra and making five more Dyer movies. It's very difficult. It right. would have been making yeah. an, an another one. Period <laughs> would have been difficult. But well, well who are they going to go with after Frank Sinatra? Do you know? Uh, no, but you do. Robert De Niro, which well, I don't think would have worked either. No, not to I, the same degree. Don't get me wrong. Robert De Niro was a great taxi driver. But no, he would not. He does. He has not aged as well as Bruce Willis has. Bruce Willis is is still Bruce Willis. No matter how old he is, he will always be Bruce Willis. Yeah. Somehow, Robert De Niro has definitely changed in shape and everything else. And well, in the type of roles he generally tends to accept yeah. as well. I could not see him. And he's tried to do some more action stuff in recent years, but it's been it's such none, none of it's worked. Yeah. yeah. Um. But no, I I think and Bruce Willis was basically a TV star up to this point. He was known for Moonlighting. Was the big show with um, was it Sybil Shepherd was in that show, um, so that was what he was known for at the time of this film was made. So he was he was a TV guy, and this was his big promotion to film. Um, so and I think we can all agree, pretty great film. Oh sure, absolutely. It's it's a classic. It's I the quintessential action movie. It's like freaking it, awesome. <laughs> Sam has a qualm with Die Hard, with which may be um, the perfect movie. What is your qualm? I'd like to hear it. I don't have any qualms. 
That's your qualm? Yeah. I, see, here's the thing. It's not my favorite action movie, <laughs> but it's obviously the perfect action movie. It's, it is the perfect really action the movie. the greatest action movie of all time, but it's not my favorite, so. What's your favorite? I don't know. Hardboiled, maybe? Maybe The Protector? We need to do Hardboiled on this podcast, because I haven't seen it. We'll do an action. We'll do an action podcast. Carl Winslow. Carl Carl Winslow. Winslow. <laughs> mm. One thing I did like is that there were character arcs for side characters. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. He had a character arc. These days, we don't even have oh, characters wait, for main were the, characters. What were the FBI agents saying? That was actually my favorite part. <laughs> Johnson and Johnson? Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. Johnson. No, no relation. relation. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's absolutely great. And um, uh, the guy from the Goonies, uh, Robert Davi, was that his name? Is uh, one, of the, one of the agents Johnson. He was uh, one of the guys from the Goonies. Well, you know, Die Hard, it's really about... It's really about learning the true meaning of Christmas. I think, I think John McClane learned the true meaning of Christmas, patched up his family. I guess it seems that way. Haven't seen Die Hard two or three. I, you know, or I, four. I've or only five. the only other Die Hard movie I've seen is the fourth one, which was Bruce Willis's triumphant return after like 15, 20 years to the role. Yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah. So I, I kind of haven't bothered to see any of the other ones. I've caught snippets of Die Hard 2, not one that I'm really rushing to see. I know that Hans Gruber's brother is the villain in Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is the third one, yeah. uh, which also has Samuel L. Jackson in it. So that one I might see, because that one sounds pretty interesting. I've seen bits and pieces of that one. It's one I want to see. Yeah, I think, I think if, if I see another Die Hard movie, it's going to be that one. Die Hard 2 is Die Hard with Airplane. Right? Yes, yeah. It's Air- Die Hard on a Plane, Yeah. Right. which was later well, remade with Harrison Ford, and they called it Air Force One. Good to know. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming. I mean, I don't. I don't know if that's true or not. So yeah, Die Hard. Um, I mean, I, I really feel like that it's a it's a story about um, you know about how um, you know Bruce Willis deals with uh, Christmas. You know, I think it's a real reflection of his own uh, you know uh, life in terms of dealing with Christmas. Explain. Family. Um, and uh, I have no explanation. I'm just trying to elevate the conversation to higher to the fanny, to the Faniac level. Right. I, I don't know what to do here to to to, to level this up. Look, Die Hard is the best non-traditional Christmas movie because it's such a great fun time to watch. Okay? It is. It okay. Because, Die Hard is amazingly is cri- fun. Christmas is critical in setting up the circumstances of it. And really nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Really nothing else. I mean, this could this could take place anytime. Basically, what you needed is everybody in the office to be there at this time, and you needed an excuse for an estranged husband to visit his wife. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all yep. you needed. And so Christmas, logically, narrative-wise, seems to be a good time for that. Sure. But beyond that, it is pointless. Right. With the exception of the blood stained message on the shirt of. Right. Ho, ho, ho. I now I have a machine gun. gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I mean, that's the most Christmassy thing that happens. In yes. The movie. Yes. It absolutely is. And what a Christmassy thing that was. Right. He's got the little Santa hat on. He's got blood all over him. It's yeah, great. It's great. It's, it's great. great. I mean, that that's the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> it's and as as the memes say, it is not uh, it's not Christmas until Hans Gruber falls off in Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> Did you know that it is illegal to take pictures of that building? Really? Yes. Do you know why? No. Because why? that is Let Fox. That is Fox headquarters. 
Really? And they are on a uh, terrorist list. So for Homeland Security purposes, it is legal to take pictures of them. Wow. That's a shame. So Die Hard's awesome. So I read. I'm so, 99 does it, but, you know. Well, special. that's also a Fox property. Right, but... Also, they had to rent out the building to themselves to make this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds about right. <laughs> sounds like a Hollywood move. What a great movie, though. It is. It's a great movie. Like, like I would is where just the talk about truck. how great it is, but it has nothing to do with the conceit of this episode. <laughs> you know what? Here's something we haven't talked about with relation to Die Hard yet. Alan freaking Rickman. Well, sure. Hans M.F. and Gruber. Yeah. One of the all-time greatest villains in the history of cinema. Sure, he's great. He's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the coolest thing about... And this was Rickman's big Hollywood debut as well, because he really hadn't done anything Hollywood. And this pretty much cemented him as one of the all-time great villainous British actors. This was his first movie. This was his first movie, period. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. Wow. Yeah. And what a, a start. And what a <laughs> it debut. Is. It is. And what a debut. An auspicious debut, I will say. No, seriously, Hans Gruber is one of my favorite cinematic villains of all time. He is easily a uh, a top-tier character for me in the history of cinema. Uh, I think he's great, and I think everything about that character that is great has to do with the way Rickman portrays him as just a cold, calculating guy who can see five steps ahead of everybody. The one thing he doesn't take into account is the one guy that's not supposed to be there, and that's what ultimately undoes him. And I love everything about that. And he also does a really good American accent. He yeah. kind of, which is, it's a shame that he never got a chance to really do much with that as an actor. Yeah. Because he, outside of this movie, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie in which Rickman had to do a, an American accent. Um, what I do know is that according to the things I read, that that scene was just written off, the, was just made because they found out he could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they find out the director finds out John McTiernan's like, uh, finds out he can do an American accent. So they write this scene in which the two characters meet and Oh yeah, it's great. It's what, wonderful. What, I wonder what it feels like to be the guy that made the greatest action movie of all time. Um, he didn't really do anything after that. Cause really. he wasn't really into it. He didn't want to do die hard, which is a shame. That's not his type of thing. Die hard's a great, and I think that worked out. It's not your type of thing. Like beginner's luck. No, not even that. He just has a perspective that's just not there. Like he's coming yeah. from like people who are in action it's the movies. Same sort of concept, though. This like, is how action movies need to be. But he's like, I don't really much care for this kind of stuff. I guess I'll make it. Well, and it's funny because I was listening to a podcast the other day, uh, talking about the Russo brothers who have done a couple of Marvel films and arguably the best action Marvel film, uh, The Winter Soldier, uh, which is a great film. Um, but they were just talking about how well the action was done. They got that gig based on an episode of Community they did that basically did what Hot Fuzz does and kind paintball of episode. the paintball episode. Which, which one? Paintball one or two one. or three or four or five or six or seven. I think it was the first one. When they played that same thing out. Yeah. Way as, too much. <laughs> as people tend to do. Um, John McTiernan also directed did. Predator and Last Four. Action Hero. Yes, Predator. Okay, so what am I? Rollerball, 13th Warrior, Thomas Crown Affair. He directed Die Hard with a Vengeance, Hunt for Red October. He did okay. a lot so of action movies. action movies were his thing. Seems really. like you My don't know what you're wrong. talking about <laughs> at well. all. Predator, also one of the greatest action movies ever, written by Shane Black. Sorry, Shane Black. Did he write it? Shane Black. Shane Black was a writer. He was definitely in the movie, too. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. we'll, get to, we'll get to Predator. Don't worry, we'll get there. Especially with Shane Black making the new Predator movie. And Lethal Weapon. Man, do I got libertarian problems with Lethal Weapon. 
We're not talking about Lethal Weapon right now, Sam. Okay. We're on Die Hard. Still Can on I Die Hard. I say that, that, that one of the things I love about Die Hard is how realistic the stakes are. Yeah. That's something that I think really elevates it over a lot of other action movies is that it's such a small, localized yeah. situation that is so realistic in scope that it, you re like it, it feels like a real thing that could happen. That like a, a place could get taken out, take 30 hostages. You know, 12 terrorists can take 30 hostages and one dude, you know, one off-duty cop could disrupt the situation enough to, to you know, completely screw up the plans. It seems Not just any off-duty cop. It, but it seems like John in the McCann. realm, it's in the realm of, of of realism, which a lot of action movies go so far out right. of that you can't even like suspend your dis disbelief to, it's, it, to this get is, it. This is the Hollywood problem because you get something like Die Hard and it's, it is very grounded and very realistic with very realistic stakes. But by the same token, there are lots of things in it that are very big, you know, pushing the C4 down the elevator oh, sure. shaft. The big explosion off the top with the helicopter. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's very big. And so people look at that. Hollywood looks at that. People in Hollywood. Mm. Debatable as to whether or not they're considered people. But <laughs> Hollywood looks at that and they say, the big action pieces, that's what people like. Mm. So, and that's why every sequel has got to be the first one, but bigger. Yeah. But yeah. they're so wrong because they're so wrong and, and they just keep being wrong. What they, yeah, well, the problem is those sequels tend to make money. Um, yeah, because people saw the first one, loved it, and want to see the next one because they've got hope that the next one is going to do something new and interesting and wonderful, just like the first one did. And then that hope is always dashed. It's always dashed. There have been a few, <laughs> a few worthy sequels, but they're few and far between. They really are. They really, really are. Um, Empire Strikes Back, obviously, is the perennial example. I would say Toy Story 2. I think Sam would disagree with me. Fudge! Sickle! Well, that was the worst Pixar movie ever. Anyways, I, Aliens. I would also would. disagree, though, not as not as strongly as Sam. Aliens. Um, Aliens. Terminator I've, 2. I've heard it. Terminator 2 especially. Um, but there are there are examples. Jeepers Creepers 2, even though it's not really the same. Would not, no. Um, have never seen Jeepers Creepers or Jeepers Creepers 2 or anything with Jeepers or Creepers. Well, we should watch those, but that also depends. Do you mind watching movies? Maybe well, will your, will your DVD skip in your PS2 or, or not? Probably not. We tried to watch it one time. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and then the DVD would skip. It was brand new. But it oh, skipped in your PS2. Back. We didn't get to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Caleb apparently remembers that better than Sam. I, I do. Um... Stephanie, Die Hard, thoughts? I liked it, but I had seen it. I mean, yeah. Die that. Hard is... I like it. It's cool. Not something that I personally watch every Christmas, but I know a lot of people do. Well, I watch what would you watch every Christmas, Stephanie? What is your movie that you watch every single Christmas? What every Christmas single Christmas since we've... I love White Christmas. Is that a traditional Christmas That is something movie? we watch. That is an extremely... Christmas. Christmas is in the title. Oh, so then why is it in this podcast? Why are we talking about it? But you know Sam what's funny Get about White here. Christmas is that most of it doesn't take place on Christmas. That's true. Only like the last five minutes of the Well, what's funny about Fanny Christmas. and Alexander is that most of it doesn't take place on Christmas. Well, for the record, more Fanny and Alexander takes place on Christmas than White Christmas. <laughs> Only because Fanny and Alexander is six and a half million right. hours. Is it possible that Fanny and Alexander is a more traditional Christmas movie than White Christmas? Somehow, yes. White Christmas is just all <laughs> if you, up to Christmas. If you boil it down to numbers. 
That sounds Christmassy to me. Yeah, it's very it's Christmassy. Very Christmassy. But um, it's just not very much on Christmas. But man, it's such a good, 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 fantastic. We may have to we may have to do that sisters. later on and have you on to talk about it. Yeah, the theater. The theater. Whatever happened to the theater? Uh, any final thoughts on Die Hard? Uh, no, it's my favorite action movie. That's all. Well, we can do a podcast on the greatest song. action movies of all time. That's one more we will not be able to do on that podcast because we reviewed it already. Well, yeah, hilarious. Enough. I would we rather have, just focus actually, on Hong Kong action. If we yeah, we should because well, maybe just Asian action because we have actually reviewed the top three action movies of all time already, which are Seven Samurai, Mad Max: Fury Road, and Die Hard. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, yeah. we so now we can boil down to uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, the protector, uh, the raid. We will have to oh, do hard boil. We will have to do hard. Yeah, boil. I would like to do some John Woo. I've uh, never just seen one John Woo. Just one John Woo. Just one John Woo. Okay. You don't need to do any other John Woo. Okay. Just keep it at that. <laughs> All right. Uh, a couple more questions before we go. I hold on. I got to pull up my document. Because let me tell you, Killer was kind of boring, and once John Woo goes to America, things went south. Can, That's can what I heard. Films like these truly be considered Christmas movies? Why or why not? Thank you, Caleb. Can films like these truly be considered Christmas movies? Why or why not? Yes, because they take place for Christmas. I think yes. You I, also I, get spirit, the Christmas spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not like well die hard is an example it's not necessary that it takes place during christmas but the fact that it does take place during christmas i think enriches it a lot because it helps the family uh kind of drama motivations aspect of it a mm -hmm. lot uh, and i think christmas is a, is a fine backdrop for that for sure um other i'm i would i'm i'm anxious to say other than the ones that we discussed today but I won't do that to you. What's your What's your favorite non traditional holiday film? Um, I'm going to go with Die Hard. <laughs> Sam, I don't know any other John. It was very hard to come up with the Gremlins. Yeah, that's true. Um, the Ref, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man Three. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, that's all. I mean, she's wearing the Christmas bikini the Dude, whole movie. I hate that movie so much; it's ridiculous. <laughs> Fun fact: Shane Black movie. Yeah, I was gonna say you were talking about Shane Black earlier, but man, do I Fun hate fact, Iron, Iron Man three. three. Iron Man three, <laughs> also Shane. I, I think Shane Black tends to put a lot of his movies in and around Christmas. Shane Black tends to make a lot of bad movies. Does he make good ones too? Yes. Uh, the Nice Guys. I didn't see. It's it. a great movie. I've, I've heard that's good. I need it's to a see great that. Movie. I but he does out. tend to make a lot of bad movies. He does, though. and he also makes some good ones too. I mean, some people would consider Lethal Weapon to be good. From a uh, political standpoint, I consider it to be atrocious and awful, but also we'll get to that in, in the event that we should ever discuss Lethal Weapon. <laughs> Stephanie, do you have a favorite non-traditional Christmas film? We know what your favorite traditional Christmas film is. Do you have a favorite non-traditional Christmas film? Um, not I pretty much only watch one film every Christmas, and that's White Christmas. That's White Christmas. Before I say, there's some emo person out there thinking, "No, I mean before Christmas." That's that's pretty traditional, though. I mean, it's got it. It's right there with. It is considered very traditional. Okay, then. I mean, it takes place on Christmas. The character's trying to steal Christmas. I despise the movie. I know you do, which is why we haven't covered. I wanted to cover it for villains, and I thought of a better villain. Oh, I would have covered. I know, but I didn't want to put you through that. No, I'm not going to for Stephanie. What? You trying to get me to watch it, and I'm like, no. All right. Uh, so on that note, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up here. Um, 
so that you guys can have this out without me here. Uh, that about wraps things up for this episode of Rule of Thirds. Uh, send us your thoughts, questions, episode suggestions, and Christmas e-cards to ruleofthirdspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Thirds Rule. Spread some holiday cheer our way by checking out our website, thirdsrule.wordpress.com. You should also rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or podcast.com. Because if you do, you might find Caleb waiting under the mistletoe for you. Oh, oh um, <laughs> side note on that. I am working on getting us on Google Play also. Sweet action. So that may be a thing by well, the time this is out or next podcast, maybe. We'll see. Okay, cool. That's very exciting. So uh, Caleb's also waiting for you under the mistletoe at Google Play. Maybe. Maybe. Hopefully. Uh, this has if been episode, <laughs> and yar. Uh, this has been episode two hundred one of the Rule of Thirds podcast, entitled "It's a Non-Traditional Holiday Film." Charlie Brown. Join us next month for our first ever director's study. We're all excited about it. We won't tell you who we're covering because that's the surprise. Until then, remember it doesn't matter if you're seeing statues move, have fed your mugwai after midnight, or stuck in the Nakatomi Plaza without shoes. You can rest easy this holiday season knowing. That third's report.